The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're multitasking. But what if you could also be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. So multitask right now. Get your quote now at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. What's going on here? Sneak out I, I, I've, been, I've been waiting. It's about damn time you looked at me and like took recognition of what I did. Yesterday, did have my uh, hair cutter come over to the house. He said it was his first house visit. He's been very strict. It's not always easy to just jump back out there. Oh, there's my dog barking. Somebody must be walking to the house. Your barber's coming back. Your, your check bounce. Oh, Johnny Depp is the demon barber of Seville. Well done. <laughs> if you don't pay, he comes back and he kills you. That was Chris yesterday admitting that he has gotten a haircut. I am on six and a half weeks without one. I want to see how long I can go without getting this shaggy thing cut. And before we get to business here, guys, on this Wednesday edition of PFT Live, hour two, I gave a very heartfelt birthday wish last hour to our good friend Justin in the U.K., who is turning 53. And there is a chance there is a viewer named Justin in the UK turning 53 today. Our friend's name, though, is Julian, not Justin. I guess we're not that good of friends. <laughs> Julian, Julian, Julian is 53 today. He's in Retford. And uh, now his friends are officially pissed off. And now his day has been made because we got it right. So if there is a Justin who's turning 53, happy birthday, Julian. Happy 53rd birthday to you. Oh, you ruined it. Now all of Julian's friends are, they they won. They're going to make fun of them. I mean, they're going to tell them that you couldn't even get their name right. I mean, geez, can't even read. But I fixed it. But I fixed it. (laughs) I fixed it. I, if I would have just let it go, then they could have endlessly given him a hard time. But now he's gotten mentioned twice. Well, he's gotten mentioned once accurately, but the whole concept made its way into the show twice. So he has that going for him. Uh, which is nice. All right, let's, uh, and look, we continue to try to provide a respite from the confusion and the uncertainty and the ambiguity and the worry of world events. But in some instances, the world events will influence what we talk about because at some point football season will begin and hopefully 
it will begin with football being played, not us talking about when will football be played. And the NFL desperately wants college football season to proceed. Even though the NFL would backfill Saturdays if it can pull that off, if the college football season doesn't go forward, the NFL wants it to go forward for many reasons, including, you know, it's kind of hard to have a draft in 2021 if there's no scouting to be done of games played by college football teams in 2020. And guys, uh, look, the articles are out there. The comments are out there from the commissioners of the various conferences. I think the end result for college football in 2020 is going to be each school will decide whether or not it can pull it off. And we're talking about the NFL's scheduling issues today. uh, And the schedule comes out tomorrow night. I think at some point these college programs are going to have a nightmare where you look at your schedule, three or four of the teams that you're due to play aren't playing this year. What are you going to do for those three or four weeks? Can you find somebody else who is playing? But I really do feel like it's going to be a piecemeal patchwork, one school at a time, maybe one conference at a time, maybe most teams from one conference, but not all of them. But college football season, if it happens in 2020, Peter, it's going to be far crazier than whatever the NFL is able to pull off. Yeah, I've been thinking about this. I read a, a really good story about this by Pete Thamel uh, at Yahoo. And it was it, it sounds like what you're saying, Mike, not really an every man for himself kind of deal, but it's going to be a situation where when I first heard about this, I started saying, hey, look, if if I were one of these commissioners of the SEC, the ACC, you know, the big 12, wherever, I would, I'd basically say, hey, look, let's have a, a a meeting on like July 15th. Let's see where we are and let's make a schedule so that all the dates that everyone has lost because of the schools that might not be playing this year, let's fill them so that there would be some real competition and some good games uh, so that you don't have to play, let's say, Presbyterian one week and then Wofford the next week to fill holes in your schedule. And I'm not criticizing them because sometimes they do play those teams. But I'm saying that I think that might allow teams to be able to fill their schedules and do it logically with some good opponents. But again, I think it's one of those things that we just don't know yet. But I, I agree. My antennae is raised to see if college football is going to be able to have any sort of normal season. I mean, man, do they have a tough road in front of them. It's just there's so many more moving parts in college football as compared to the NFL. First off, you know, all the kids on a college football team. I mean, most of these major programs got 100, 120 guys on their team all year long. You know, once kids get back into school, into college, And now what are you going to do with the football team? Are you going to integrate them with the rest of the student body? Or are we just going to like, just go up? I hope no one gets sick. Are we not even going to test them? Are we going to test the school, the students every day and the players? Can you actually like kind of quarantine the college football players away from the rest of, you know, the, the student body? I just don't know, let alone like, you know, certain parts of our country have certain, you know, beliefs or ideas about this COVID-19. You know, as we're seeing, some of the southern states are a little more lax with their rules. And we're hearing and seeing a little science that the warm weather is better. So what if we start the college football season and then all of a sudden it gets to late fall 
And a school like Michigan is in the north, and everybody's kind of telling us right now when the weather turns again that this thing could resur- you know, could have a resurgence. You know, what, what, was, what are we supposed to do? What's, what's Michigan supposed to do if all of a sudden there's another outbreak at their school and there's, you know, a bunch of guys in the team that have COVID-19? You know, to me, that's where it's just there's so many questions and things to deal with in a co- at college football. Uh, man, is it going to be hard to orchestrate to have a real football season for them? And I think it's a given at this point. You can't have college football without college. You can't bring just the football team back and keep the rest of the campus shut down. That's the point where they admit that the college football players are only there to make money. They're not there to play football as some sort of an extension to the college experience like maybe it once was decades ago. Now these guys are unpaid workers who are there to generate billions of dollars collectively for the college football machinery. So if you can't put classes back in session and have people on campus, you can't get away with that, that mental gymnastics of justifying bringing those kids back. But Chris, to one of the points you made, you know, the, the college football players will be likely to self-quarantine because of what we discussed yesterday with this concept of testing. If you're going to get tested before you go into the practice facility every time you show up, you don't want to be positive. You want to be able to practice. You want to be able to play. You don't want to let your team down. You don't want to miss out on the thing that you love doing, which is playing football. That is going to cause these guys to be even more careful about not testing positive, not because they're afraid of the virus or they think they're going to get sick or they think they're going to die. No, they just don't want the result of that test that they have to do before they show up for every practice and every game to come back positive and they get shut down for two or three weeks. So I, I think that that will kind of take care of itself, that the players will voluntarily stay within a bubble. They'll keep everyone away because they don't want to come back positive. So if we get to the point where everyone is on campus together, I think the college football players will enforce it among themselves and they'll want to do it. You'll, you'll want to stay away from everyone else. But, so you but Mike, don't show up positive. I'll just throw this out there, but what do you do? Like a lot of these, these college football teams are in a dormitory with the normal student body. That's to me where it'll get confusing. Like I can just speak to my personal experience at Texas. I was in the biggest dorm along with the rest of the football team on campus and i believe it was over like ten thousand kids just in this dorm it was that big it was like a 20 something story building so there's another issue too like yeah the player might want to self-quarantine but damn he's gonna have to go up the elevator in that dorm and then he's gonna have to go up the stairwell and probably have to get some food in the cafeteria and things like that that's to me where it just becomes really challenging for a college player as compared to an nfl player who has money has means can go to the office every day, get in his car, go back to his apartment or house or whatever it may be and quarantine that way. I just think it's a little bit more of a struggle for the college student. Peter, any thoughts on that? I think one of the that? things that colleges are going to have to do, my, Mike and Chris, is I, I heard a really interesting interview the other day with the Brown University president. Now, obviously, this is a totally different situation. It's not a gigantic campus in the Ivy League. It's different. But the Brown University president basically made this point that there's already 320 students living on campus through this pandemic because of all the people who couldn't go home because maybe they live overseas, they were banned from traveling back home or whatever, they couldn't go home. And so 
they've kind of gotten a head start on figuring out how to live with this. And I think, like, you saw the Houston Texans the other day. They hired basically uh, a cleaning specialist, you know, who's going to tell them how to do proper hygiene, how to do proper cleaning in this era of COVID-19. So just like the people at Brown University are getting a head start, look, at the University of Texas, I would bet you a lot of money that if the football team is going to go back and is going to start playing games, that they will do a lot and a lot different than the old days where everybody all merged in the same dorm. And I don't even know what they would do, but <clears throat> there's going to be a different way of living on college campuses, not only for the general population, but certainly for the athletic population. Yeah, and, you know, the, the, as Chris was explaining it and as Peter, as you were talking about it, there's just this nagging sense that whether it's at the NFL level or the college level, and it's more prevalent at the college level, every question you raise that you answer, it spawns more questions. And then yeah. those answers yeah. create more questions and then more questions. And I don't know how you get it to a point where anyone is sufficiently confident and comfortable that this is all going to work. And even with an explosion in testing, whether diagnostic testing or antibody testing, the virus is still going to be there. It's still going to migrate. It's still going to get to people. What do you do about the professors in these classes if you're going to have college and college football? How do you protect them if they're older or if they're in risk groups? I worry about the people who don't realize they have health conditions that put them in risk groups. And they're going to find out the hard way that they had diabetes. Plenty of people don't find out they have diabetes for a long time until they crash and get really sick from it. You, you, you may have type 1 or type 2 and not even realize it yet. And then you get COVID-19 and that's it. So there's just a lot, a lot of, of issues and concerns here. And I think it does make it much more difficult to have a college football season. I know there's been talk about playing it from February to May, which would even more complicate the NFL draft. And how do you justify taking guys who played football until May and have them play in the following September from the standpoint of their overall health and safety? So the NFL wants to get this done, wants college football to happen. And even if it is some teams, even if it's just the big schools, the Alabamas, the Clemsons, et cetera, it, it, it's man. this last 10 minutes has made me think it, it is a Herculean task, Chris, to pull this off. Yeah, it really is. It is. It's way tougher than what the NFL has to deal with. And, you know, we've made a lot of the great points. I mean, you're right. I mean, how do you do this if students aren't there? Can you really trust kids that are 18, 19 years old? I certainly know on my Texas team, you know, if something like this was going on, would I sit here and go, oh, I trust all 120 guys are going home after practice and going to quarantine themselves? No, I would have some guys going, man, I know he's going to go chase girls here and this guy's going to go play an Xbox Fortnite tournament or whatever with a bunch of guys. And who knows what the hell happens tomorrow? What virus is in our locker room? So it's still really early to tell at this point. Um, but you know, the SEC seems steadfast right now, and they're going to have a college football season. And I think where a lot of these schools are really panicking is, as you guys know, college football supports so many other programs within the universities. It's such a huge moneymaker. It's not just about the sports. They pay for all different programs throughout the school. The college football programs really keep these schools running and afloat and in the you know positive margin as far as money is concerned. And I think they're, they're surely panicking about that right now as well. 
Yeah, and you know, the one thing that college football is going to have a very difficult time doing that we assume the NFL will just do without flinching if they have to is play games without fans. How do you justify a college football game without that pageantry that goes along with it, without the fans in the stands, without the kids there? Again, it comes closer and closer to acknowledging that college football really isn't about college. It's about making as much money as you can televising these games. And and the the financial ramifications are different as well. It's not like a given college football game generates as much money as a given NFL game does. But, you know, if, if you are in states where they say, sorry, we're not going to let people gather in hundreds or thousands, um, it's just not going to happen. The decision's going to be made. California, if California's not willing to open up stadiums for the NFL, they're not going to open up stadiums for the colleges there. So no USC, no UCLA, no Stanford, no Cal. Um, you know, a, a lot of it's going to be taken care of that way because I just can't imagine any of these. You know, you could, ha- you could have this almost like a, 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 you know, a Harlem Globetrotters, which never has a home game. They're always playing on the road. You could, ha- I, could you have a college team? that just doesn't play at home, Peter, and plays all its games on the road in a given year? I mean, I think a school like Stanford would say, there's, there's, this is too much. This is too much. Stanford, uh, I'm sure, and look, I'm not, I don't have any idea about the, the effect on the endowment or anything like that, but, you know, Stanford is not going to have the same decision-making process as Alabama is. They're just not. And, and, and I think the one thing I would say, and I think Chris is absolutely right, the one reason why I think you should really look at college football in the real hotbed areas as being a little bit different is because it isn't only the fact, hey, we want to we have a sense of normalcy here. You know, we want to get on with our lives. It isn't only that. It is the fact that, Interstate commerce and television contracts and advertising and basically the flow of regular America. You don't think Donald Trump is going to be out on September 20th calling for the resumption of college football? I mean, you know, he's doing it now for all sports. So there's going to be an awful lot of, and I don't even want to say the word pressure, but there's going to be a lot of the workings of society Basically, we are three months away from really having to make a hard decision about whether college football games are going to be played. And, you know, a lot can happen in three months. But I, I and, and I don't think that all schools will end up playing, but I do think enough will end up playing so that, you know, the machinery known as college football will grind on in some form or fashion this season. Kevin Warren, the Big Ten commissioner, recently said that they are at least six weeks away from having to make key decisions. So it's coming. It's coming. And a lot can change in six weeks. Look at what's happened over the course of the last six. One more point before we go. And I I wanted to mention this last hour, and, and it's just something I just want to throw out there for consumption, conversation, and thought as we get closer to the release of the NFL schedule. One of the things I'm going to be looking for, and it's not going to be the easiest thing to do, But I want to cross-reference some of these team schedules. I want to see whether or not the NFL is factoring in the possibility of shared stadiums if you do have 
teams like the 49ers, the Rams, the Chargers, who aren't allowed to play in front of fans. Will the NFL have teams double up for a year? Will Phoenix, will the Cardinals in Phoenix share their stadium with an L.A. team? Will the Raiders, if they play in Las Vegas this year with an open stadium, share with an L.A. team? Could the 49ers end up sharing with the Broncos if they're able to play in an open stadium? It's going to be a philosophical decision the NFL has to make if ultimately forced with the reality that in some states they're not going to have open stadiums, but other states there will be. Do we put the teams for one year in the places where they can sell tickets and make whatever money they can off of the box office, play the games there, and have teams share a stadium like we currently see the Jets and the Giants do. Just something to think about. We, man, maybe we can talk about it later in the program, but we do have to take a break. I just want to throw that idea out there for general consumption and general thought as we get closer to the release of the schedule tomorrow night. All right, Jadavian Clowney says he's healthy and ready to roll. What is the latest on his future? We'll discuss that next here on Pro Football Talk Live. Jadavian Clowney's been a free agent for nearly two months. Not much interest in him in large part because there's no ability to give him a proper physical to determine whether or not he's healthy. Also, he reportedly wants a lot of money. He spoke with Mark Berman of Fox 26 in Houston. Here's what Jadavian Clowney had to say. I just want to let people know I'm ready. I'll be ready to go whenever the time comes. Whoever I sign with will get the best version of me. I'm working. I'm staying ahead of schedule and working, and I'm going to be ready to go when training camp starts he also hasn't ruled out a return to the seattle seahawks who really haven't shown the level of interest that we thought they would i think they're just waiting for Clowney's financial demands to drop Clowney says he's got a few offers but he's in no rush now he's waiting for the right opportunity and the right timing peter what do you know what do you think what do you believe about Jadavian Clowney's future in 2020 i've i've said all along that i think the favorite in the clubhouse for Clowney is seattle uh, and I think that Seattle's going to end up with either Clowney or Everson Griffin when the dust settles heading into this season. Um, but I do think, I, I, I think the Seahawks are being absolutely right, correct, and fair in holding whatever their contractual line is on Clowney. And let's say I'll pick a number out of the, out of the sky. Let's say it's $14 million a year. I, I mean, let's look at Jadavian Clowney's career. He's played six years in the NFL. He's had 32 and a half sacks. And if he played every game like he played the Monday night football game against San Francisco last year, he'd get a contract commensurate to what Reggie White earned in his career, you know, dollars versus dollars. So, but he doesn't do that. And I'm not blaming him. He's had a lot of injuries. I get it. But the fact is, you are what you are. And Jadavian Clowney is a very good football player who produces at the highest level of football, not every week. And look, part of that has been injury. I get it. But I don't know why in the world that there's this expectation that Jadavian Clowney should make $18 million a year, especially in this environment where teams are not spending the way they did in the past. And I think part of that is because of the current economics. And the situation that we have, there are not a lot of long-term big money contracts this offseason. So I think Jadavian Clowney, if I were him, I'd get as much money as I could for two years. 
and prove that I deserve when the cap really starts to go up. Prove that I deserve really a significant bump. But based on what I've seen so far, I would hold the line the exact same way that John Schneider and the Seahawks are. Yeah, well, I mean, Peter, you made a lot of good points. I mean, you really did. I, I was going to make a lot of them. You're right. I mean, Jadeveon Clowney, when he's healthy and ready to go, I don't care what the stats say. He will ruin a game plan in four seconds. He is one of the best defensive players in the league. You know, like you said, when we see him really healthy, you could argue he's the best defensive player in the league. He's one of those guys, Mike, that you and I talk about. He's got the F up the play stat. He's been one of the league leaders. He can play in a 3-4. He can play in a 4-3. You know, he is uh, a, a guy like when you turn on the film or watch a game on Sunday and he's in it, you don't know. If you don't know anybody in the field, you just go, man, who is that guy? He is big and fast and he is aggressive and everywhere. I mean, he's a game changer, but he's damaged goods to what Peter said. Like, he, he is. And injuries are part of Jadeveon Clowney, and that's unfortunate. I don't like that for him. I really like this player. I mean, he's one of my man crushes right here. But, you know, when you get into micro fractures and lower, low, you know, Liz Franks and, uh, you know, of course, what we saw this year with, with the core muscle surgery and all that, those are serious injuries for a guy that plays defense and as physical as he does. So, ultimately, I look at teams like I think what Jadeveon has to do is what Peter said. Find a one, a two-year deal. It's kind of, I think, how he's going to have to live his NFL career is on one and two-year deals and just keep playing that way to maximize it. And I think there's some teams out there that certainly could use him and probably will overpay for him a little bit on a year-to-year -year basis. Yeah, I think one-year deal is the most he can hope for now. And, you know, anytime the argument comes up that all NFL contracts should be guaranteed – the easy response is if that were the case, they'd all be one, two at the most three-year deals if they were fully guaranteed. But that may just be the way Jadavian Clowney does exist in the NFL. He never gets that gigantic contract with a lot of guaranteed money and you know, it's fully guaranteed for maybe two years and then it's all fluff on the back end. And you know, maybe it's better this way. Maybe because you're not tied in. They can squat on you because they have your rights beyond that second year and maybe it's a great deal for them so they keep you around at a salary they like. No, just make it that short-term deal. Go have an impact and then go back to the trough the next year and make what you can. And, and that may be Clowney. That may be who he is and what he is. And I think every year there will be someone who sees what he did the prior year and says, even if he's banged up, even if he's hurt, even if he's only going to play 10 games, I want that guy on the field, Peter, for 10 games. It, which is exactly how it should be, Mike. And uh, I, I would love to have Jadavian Clowney on my team. Absolutely love it. But there comes a point where you have to do the responsible thing for your organization. You saw that list of injuries. You saw everything, uh, you know, about his production. And look, sack is an overrated statistic. I agree. However, it is telling to some degree. And the fact is, He's never had a double-digit sack season in his career. He's averaged less than half a sack a game. And, and again, don't take that for everything because he can wreck games. Right. If he wrecked games every week, nobody would care about the, the sack stats. He doesn't wreck games every week. He's either been too hurt or too inconsistent to wreck games every week. And that's why you have to be responsible when you go to negotiate a contract with Jadavian Clowney. Right. I, like right. Mike, I thought like he would he would maybe get a long term contract, a less than the year by year salary cap blow. But Mike, you make a great point. I mean, with an injury history like that, 
You don't want to, okay, yeah, we could have got out of this deal after two years and move on. But if the guy that gets injured as much as he does, you might get stuck with having to pay years three and four if it was a serious injury or something like that. So that's the risky part. But he plays a premium position, and we know there's some teams like the Tennessee Titans, the Eagles, the Jets, with some salary cap room and the positional need to where I think there's going to be a market for Clowney, and he'll get some big money, at least for 2020. All right, coming up, you're going to hear some of my interview from Tuesday with Steelers GM Kevin Colbert. Then after that, we will be drafting our candidates for Comeback Player of the Year in 2020. We'll be back with more Pro Football Talk Live right after this. Comeback Player of the Year candidate odds have been released. Rob Gronkowski, the favorite at plus 300, means you bet $100 if he's the Comeback Player of the Year. You win 300, and there they are, all the way up to Mitchell Trubisky at plus 10,000. What we're going to do now in this three man weave Wednesday is we are going to draft our Comeback Player of the Year candidates for 2020. Peter gets the trivia question. Peter, who is the only player to win Comeback Player of the Year twice? He has done it with two different teams. Do you know? Plays quarterback. Um, I would played quarterback. bet. I'm going to bet Chris Miller. I don't have any idea. Okay, Manning. No, nope. Peyton Manning, Chad, Chad Pennington. You're both wrong. Ooh, Chad Pennington. Man, oh, did it with the Jets. Did it with the Very Dolphins good. in 2008, the year that uh, the Jets picked up Brett Favre and the Jets dumped Pennington. He was comeback player of the year for the Miami Dolphins. All right, so you both were wrong. I should just go ahead and take the first pick. Go ahead, take do, it. Please do. You right. take the first I, pick. All right, first pick. I, I'm, I'm, I don't. I mean, Gronk. Yeah, I can understand why he's on the board as the favorite. I think it's Ben Roethlisberger. He only played two games last year. See, the whole comeback player of the year, it's based on where you were and where you are. And for Roethlisberger, he was nowhere. So the bar set for him is as low as it can be, short of being retired last year. But he's coming back from the serious injury. There are plenty of indications he's going to be healthy. He's going to be ready to go. He's going to be determined to have a big year. He's got help with Chase Claypool, who Kevin Colbert was just talking about in the earlier segment. Their running game is going to be diversified among three or four guys. I think it's going to be Roethlisberger. That, that's my top pick for comeback player of the year. Yeah, I mean, it's a good one. And, you know, of course, uh, quarterbacks are – oh, no, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, you're, is it me or you? No, okay. you go, Chris. Okay. All right. Sorry. Um, all right. I'm going to go – I'm going to go with Derwin James. I'm going to go with Derwin James. And, you know, for, for a simple reason, you know, really. Why? Because I think he's one of the best defensive players in football. And he's certainly one of the best safeties in football and plays on a team that really values and puts the safety in a position to be a, you know, a guy that gets a lot of tackles. It just has a big effect on the football game. He plays that Cam Chancellor position for the Los Angeles Chargers. It's that same Seattle defensive scheme. We know they got other talented guys on that team to go along with him. But I just look at him and Jamal Adams and go, those are the two best safeties in football right now. And he's always by the line of scrimmage. He was phenomenal as a rookie. They did miss him last year. They were really good without him. But I think they become like one of the best defenses in football with him in there healthy. He's one of my favorite players in the NFL. So I'm going to go with Derwin James. You know, I'm going to go with David Johnson. 
and for a couple of reasons. Number one, look, in 2016, he was the best all-purpose back in football. And I think since then, he's taken a huge step back in part because of being hurt a lot and in part because of the Cardinals' offense. But I think right now, after having only 1,300 rushing yards in the last three years, he goes to a team where the head coach is very motivated, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, to make sure that David Johnson has a very big year. There's a lot riding on Bill O'Brien right here. He's got to he's got to show everybody that there's a reason why 2016 he was the best all-around back he and Le'Veon Bell in football and that he still can be. So I'll take uh, David Johnson and I'll be pretty comfy with that pick. See, here's the issue I have with both of your picks because this is a subjective award that's voted on by 50 members of the media and it's going to gravitate more toward the sexy names. They ain't voting for Derwin James unless he has, um, you know, a defensive player of the year type season. Because Derwin course James, they are. It, it's annoying. It's stupid. That's why I refuse to pick some of them. I mean, it's like the MVP of the Super Bowl every year. Oh, this team won. We got to make the quarterback the MVP. I mean, it's just it's quarterback, 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 quarterback. Yeah, screw it. I want to give Derwin James some love. He's one of the best players I, in football, hey, okay? I mean, yeah. that that's fine. That's fine. You, you either want to get on your soapbox or you want to be right. It's your choice. Peter, you got something to add? Yeah, look, I'm one of the voters for this. And I don't care whether I'm whether I vote for the winner or whatever. I vote for the guy who I believe has come back Good. from the biggest issue the previous year, whatever position he is. And I'm going to jump the line and I'm going to make my second vote because neither of you guys would pick him in the top three. But my number two guy right here is Trent Williams. And it's because Trent Williams has been a total lost cause, you know, for the last year, a totally forgotten guy. Now he goes to one of the best teams in football. And if he is a top five left tackle next year, I'm voting for Trent Williams. I mean, unless Ben Roethlisberger throws for 6,000 yards or, or something. But and, and all I'm saying is, Mike, I vote for the guy, regardless of position, who has come back from the biggest issue and had the best season. God, now I know Man. how the Vikings felt in 2002 and 2003. Right? Hey, what Chris a jerk I, this Chris guy and I is. have a little side conversation. <laughs> he just takes our pick. I'm taking Matthew Stafford. And the, the irony of the Matthew Stafford selection is this. He once was named Comeback Player of the Year for nothing. He was coming back from nothing. He had never had a baseline of anything in the NFL. He just finally had a year that wasn't bad, and they made him Comeback Player of the Year. Congratulations, Matthew Stafford. This time around, he's coming back from having season derailed by a broken bone in his back. And uh, I, I think the Lions, and I, I, I think we're going to be saying this every year until it finally happens, they're trending in the right direction. But maybe <laughs> yeah, right. this year they finally are. I think Stafford has a chance to join Chad Bennington as two-time comeback player of the year, even though he didn't deserve it the first time around. Yeah, that's a good pick. I mean, yep, yeah, you're just going chalk. You know, make the people happy. Just draft quarterbacks, Mike. That's I'm right. I'm going money. <laughs>
Man. Shock is money, baby. I got a deal with Florio, and then now the new Bobby Big Chest, you know, football morning in America, just cutting the line and making picks. <laughs> I, I, I did have Trent Williams written down. I was going to try to sneak him in as a third-round pick, but that was a good pick by you nonetheless, Peter. All right. You know, Peter explained it really well. You know, guys that went off, you know, had some real things to deal with in the previous year. I don't know if anybody dealt with more than Miles Garrett, all right? And that's going to be my next choice because, first off, I mean, not a lot of us are viewing Miles Garrett in the most positive light right now. You know, I think there was some, you know, to, to you know, some real questions about his story or his side of the story. But regardless, he is super talented. He is one of the best defensive players in football and certainly one of the best pass rushers in the game. And I think he's going to be a little bit pissed off and wanting to kind of just shove it in everybody's face, let alone I think Cleveland's headed in the right direction too. You know, this is my pick for NFL defensive MVP last year, and I think he'll be in that running again this year. And if he doesn't get it, he'll get comeback player of the year. All right, Peter, we'll let you keep your I spot cut the line, line last time. So Mike, go ahead, go. cut it again. Oh, okay, I'll take an AJ Green. Okay, I'll AJ cut it Green again. the Cincinnati. No, I'm, right. I'm taking AJ Green. <laughs> all right, go AJ ahead. AJ Green to the Cincinnati Bengals <laughs> is my choice. He didn't play at all last year because of an ankle injury that happened when they practiced on a crappy field in Dayton. All due respect. Now they have Joe Burrow, uh, Joe Mixon, offensive line. Hopefully, a little bit better. Can't get much worse. AJ Green motivated by being in a franchise tag year, trying to get a long-term contract from the Bengals or someone else to go from no stats to potentially a thousand yard season with a team that's going to have a higher profile. Thanks to the presence of Burrow. I think that's going to get Green some consideration. Who's next? Chris, go ahead, Peter. You take it. You go. Chris. Go ahead. Okay. I'll take it. I'll take Rob Gronkowski tight end Tampa Bay Buccaneers. He's the eighth pick in this draft. Uh, I know. It's kind of it's kind of an easy pick, but but and and I didn't want to take him right away because it's almost too easy. But I I just think that some guys are motivated by some things, and and some guys are motivated by different things, and I think that Rob Gronkowski, you know this this really sticks in my mind. Last year, when Rob Gronkowski made the NFL's top 100 all-time team, and he was, you know, talking uh, to people at NFL Network, NFL Films, and he was talking about it, you could just see, and again, I, I don't remember what the soundbite was, but I watched that and I said, man, he does not look or sound like a retired player. And I just think, I, I don't want to be cliche. I think the guy's got unfinished business, so we'll see. Yeah, good pick. I mean, there's so many good names to pick here. I mean, I, I've thought about Todd Gurley. I can't go there. I'm going to go with Bradley Chubb and the Denver Broncos. Kind of an unforgotten guy or a forgotten guy here over the last year. You know, had a, a, an ACL tear very early on. You know, it was late training camp or early season. I can't remember exactly when it was, but he should be completely 100% ready to go. And, you know, like we talk about with a lot of these guys, they have a support system around them. And now, you know, that Denver defense is real. And he's playing in a 3-4 scheme with Vic Fangio, which he didn't really get to take advantage of last year. And they have Von Miller and Jarrell Casey and other guys you have to worry about blocking. So Bradley Chubb's a guy I look to jump back on the scene and be double-digit sack type of uh, defensive player. All right, great draft. Good idea with Bradley Chubb. We got to go. But before we go, the reason that I didn't pick Gronk and wouldn't pick Gronk, if he has the kind of year 
that gets him in consideration for comeback player of the year. He's got a guy on his team that is going to take away votes, and that's Tom Brady. That's the one factor that's being overlooked because Brady has had a couple of down years, and if Gronk has huge numbers, that means Brady's going to have huge numbers too, and I think Brady will siphon some of those votes away. All right, one guy who was omitted, Chris, how dare you? You left off OBJ. He will be a potential comeback player of the year. He vows to have one of his best seasons yet. We'll talk about him when PFT Live continues right after this. Odell Beckham Jr. was not selected in our draft of comeback player of the year candidates, but he is determined to have one of the best seasons of his career in his second year with the Cleveland Browns. He posted a video Monday night saying, right now what I'm trying to do is hit the reset button. Being able to get everything fixed, shoulder, arms, back, everything aligned, functional, moving properly so I can begin training to be ready for this season. I would honestly say this is going to be one of my best seasons. Bigger, stronger, factor, this, my time. That's Odo Beckham Jr. And look, I don't know if he can wedge his way into the comeback player of the year conversation. He still had a decent season. But Chris, if this guy has one of his best seasons ever with the Browns, that will mean a lot of good things for Cleveland. Baker Mayfield, big year. Kevin Stefanski, the right head coach. Nick Chubb, a big year running the ball. Uh, if, if Beckham delivers, that means the Browns are going to be in the postseason. Yeah, I, I mean, I would agree with that. You know, I do think the stars are aligning here for, you know, Eldwell Beckham Jr. to have a big year. You know, uh, he, he fought through injury all year last year. We know that. You know, it, it happened pretty early on in the season, and he was dealing with it really since training camp. You know, I'll, I'll stand by what you've always heard me say, guys. I think when Odell Beckham Jr. is healthy and hitting on all cylinders, he's one of the best receivers I've ever seen in my life. But the way he can explode in and out of cuts, his route running, his ability to do special things with the ball in his hands after the catch, let alone he's a deep threat. Uh, so, yeah, I think the world of this player – and, you know, this is, a, this is a team that just needs to be better, too. But I think his health will go a long way to make things more comfortable between him and Baker Mayfield. And, and uh, I expect him to have a huge season. Peter, your thoughts? Any self-respecting voter for a Comeback Player of the Year award would not have Odell Beckham Jr. in the discussion for it, no matter whether he catches 150 balls. Odell Beckham Jr. played 16 games last year. He caught 74 balls for over 1,000 yards. He's not going to be the comeback player of the year. He's not going to get a vote for comeback player of the year. Now, I agree. He could be significantly better because Chris is right. He was hurt all last year. He seems to be single-mindedly devoted to being a great football player this year. We shall see. But as far as comeback player of the year, that's not happening. Peter, I almost thought you were going to say no self-respecting Southerner uses instant grits. That's where I thought you were going. And uh, <laughs> anybody who knows where that's from gets a free one-year subscription to Pro My Football Talk. My cousin Vinny. My cousin Exactly. Vinny. I don't want the um, free subscription. Oh, the hell <laughs> <it>. <laughs> uh, too bad. You already have one. Um, I, look, I, I just... I, 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 I just think that the biggest thing the Browns need to do is get away from this obsession with getting Odell Beckham Jr. the football. They will be so much better off if they can craft an offense 
that isn't about any one personality. It's about the quarterback throwing the ball to the open receiver. So I don't care how healthy Odo Beckham Jr. is. I don't care how good he feels. I don't care how determined he is. It seemed like it was every week there was some conversation coming out of that locker room. And this, I fault Freddie Kitchens. And look, it's, it's hard to fault him because he was not suited for the job that he ended up having. But you ca- it can't be about how many times Odo Beckham Jr. touches the football if you want to win games distribute the ball to the open guy and if odell's open he gets the ball we need to take a break we're going to wrap up this wednesday edition of pro football talk live right after this we practice four times a day two you know a morning walkthrough at daylight in shorts then we were out in shorts and our full pads in the morning and then shorts and shoulder pads and helmets in the afternoon and then a walkthrough in the evening so we had four practices a day for like the first nine days. It was hell. <laughs> we had a guy that had the tolerance of, uh, well, next to nothing. You know, if you didn't pick it up the first or second time, he became vehement about it. And, uh, you know, 90 degree heat, practicing four times a day, 10 days to get ready to install a new offense and defense. Think about all that. Larry Zonka with Peter King on the Peter King Podcast. It's available at youtube.com slash NBC Sports or wherever you get your podcast. Peter, first thing you think of when Don Shula's name comes to mind. Uh, exacting standards and honor and trying to do everything the right way. There's a great story from Larry Zonka in that podcast about the time that Don Shula was handed the game plan of the Oakland Raiders before a Raiders-Miami game and what Don Shula did with it. You got to listen to it. Yeah, I, I, Shula is so amazing to me in so many ways, Mike. You know, I think the thing that as I've digested this over the last like two days that's amazing to me is here was a guy that was in the conversation for best coach of the decade in three different decades, you know, the 60s, yeah, you know, Vince Lombardi's probably king, but it's Paul Brown and Don Shula. I think those are the three names. You get into the 70s, who is it? It's Don Shula, Chuck Knoll, probably the king, Tom Landry. You get into the 80s, even though he didn't win a Super Bowl, he still went to two. You know, Bill Walsh, Joe Gibbs, Don Shula. I mean, it's pretty unbelievable. You know, that's where I just look at it and go, man, the sustained greatness the guy brought to football for three straight decades is uh, absolutely remarkable. Kevin Colbert, the Steelers GM, spent five years in Miami early in his career. And when I interviewed Kevin yesterday, he speaks in reverential tones of Don Shula and what he learned and things that are still with him today. Simple things like if you have red paint, paint your barn red, that you use what you have. (laughs) Think about the Dolphins, the early 70s. Chris and I talked about this yesterday. If what you have is a team with a great defense and a running game, that's what you do. You have Dan Marino, great quarterback. That's what you do, Peter. Football really can be that simple. I hate the fact that everybody, when they first think of Shula, will think he never won a Super Bowl with Marino, and he lost the 18, as an 18-point favorite in the Super Bowl. Totally unfair. A life's work is about a body of work. And look at his 33 years. And truly one of the all-time greats. That's it for today's PFT Live. We'll see you back here on Thursday. Damn. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. 
Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.